we can create affordable housing and, and call it affordable housing, but if people are living in poverty, it's still probably not affordable. Uh, so we have to address the poverty issue first. Welcome to the Ballot Box, featuring Krista Greer. Welcome back to the Ballot Box, a semi-regular segment of the Cross-Border Interview Podcast, where I sit down with a candidate and talk about the most important thing a candidate is doing at that time, which is running in an election. Uh, the federal election is probably going to be called here within a few days, few weeks. So I thought to myself, why, why talk about the federal election? Let's talk about the other important election that is happening right now in the Confederation, in the province of Nova Scotia, the Nova Scotia general election. And today we are pleased to welcome the Green Party of Nova Scotia candidate for the district of Annapolis, Miss, and I, I, I actually, I forgot to ask you how to pronounce your last name, but Krista Greer? Yes. Okay. Krista, thank you so much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, I, I have so many questions about what's going on in Nova Scotia right now, how the election's unfolding, because there's, like we just said in the pre-interview, less than 10 days away until uh, the ballot box is open and people can start counting or uh, ca casting their ballots if they haven't already. Um, I, I start off all my interviews with any candidate the same way, and I'm going to start it with you the same way. Where does your sense of duty to serve come from, Krista? Well, uh, first, thanks for having me. And I would also like to acknowledge that I'm here on the unceded territory of the Mi'kma'ki. Um, we are um, all treaty people in Nova Scotia. We have the treaties of peace and friendship. But uh, to your answer your question of where my sense of duty comes from, I never really thought of it as a sense of duty. It, to me, it was just a motivation to actually be change. If you want to have change, you have to be a change maker. And I also really wanted to be a, a role model for my daughters. Um, they're young adults, they're 25 and 27, and... You know, it's one thing to, to say these things need to happen. It's another thing to actually go out and, and do something to try and make things happen. So that's really what motivates me. Um, I, I just want to take a moment and thank you. Uh, we have been doing this show for three years now, this new segment of the show, not for three years, this new segment we've been doing for less than a month. And you are the first candidate and I've had federal politicians, provincial politicians, and candidates from all parties, you are the first candidate to give a land acknowledgement at the beginning of an interview. I want to thank you for that, because with, the, with everything going on in Canada right now, we forget to do that. And I want, to I want to take the special moment and acknowledge the fact that while it is something small at the end of the day for some people, it is a big gesture that we could all be doing and I could be doing it myself. So thank you so much for doing that. It's, it was greatly appreciated. You're welcome. Um, I, I want to turn to the election. Uh, before the interview started, I said I, I wanted to talk about what you're hearing at the door, and I was shocked when uh, you told me that 
there is a lot of apathy in Nova Scotia right now for the election. Not a lot of people are talking about it. And when I was trying to do research on what some of the issues were, I was finding that there wasn't a lot of people talking about the election. Are you finding at the doors that people haven't made up their mind, aren't even talking about the elections in their own houses or just don't even care that there's an election going on? I I think it's a little bit of all of that, um, especially here in in my electoral district. It it may be different in in other areas of the province. Um, But what I've experienced is a lot of people who just maybe they're overwhelmed because of the pandemic and the timing of the election. Um, You know, you know, so voting and and thinking about politics really isn't top of mind for folks. Um, I get a lot of well, you know, my vote just, what does my one vote matter? Um, or I don't vote anyways. I'm seeing a lot, a lot more of that than I expected. Um, and it, it's a little bit surprising. I mean, pandemic fatigue aside, it, it, to me, it is, it is surprising. Um, you know, so, so, so when people, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, how do you, how do you battle that back? Because uh, on the show, I, I am an advocate for voting, voting, voting. Everyone has the responsibility, while it's not a constitutional mandated responsibility to go out and vote, you should be out going to vote because the decisions that our governments make are important ones. And if you are upset of at the way that the government is handling a certain issue or the way they are moving the province or the federal government, you have the right to speak up. If you don't vote, you don't. So how do you talk to people as a candidate to say, hey, I understand you don't vote, but you need to. You need to make your voice heard. Mm-hmm. It's, it's It can be challenging to, to address that with folks. Um, Usually I like to approach it from the, the position of more of the position of, of if somebody feels their vote doesn't count. Um, if we all felt that our vote didn't count and only, you know, we're, we're seeing what, 20, 30 percent voter turnout on average. Um, if, if that's 70 percent, maybe there a lot of those folks feel like their vote doesn't count. If they did come out and vote, imagine what would happen. Um, you know, would you see the same MLAs or MPs? Would you see the same governments? Probably not. <laughs> um, you know, and, and if, if we want change, we have to voice that change and not be afraid to voice that change. Um, recently, um, I, I, wrote it, I wrote it down because I thought it was really um, a really cool quote. Just this past weekend, uh, Peter Bevan Baker, who's the leader of the Greens and PEI, was in uh, Truro doing some campaigning there with uh, a couple of our candidates. And uh, there was a a really great article about it. And in the article, they were quoting one of his, um, one of the other green MLAs in PEI and said what attracted them to the green movement was was a statement that Peter had made that um, when honorable people come together behind noble ideas, the almost impossible becomes the almost inevitable. And, and that really resonated. That's, that's the kind of message we need to be sharing with these folks is that, yes, we can come together and make that almost impossible possible. 
Now, uh, that's a good segue into this question. What attracted you to the Green Party of Nova Scotia? Oh, um, years and years ago, in the early 2000s, I, um, I was living in Ontario, and I did some uh, canvassing with uh, the Green Party there. So that was sort of my first uh, foray into provincial politics. And then, of course, life happens and, you know, you move here, you move there. But when I got to uh, to Nova Scotia, I, I just saw a meeting. There was a meeting of, of it happened to be the federal Green Party EDA um, inviting folks. And I thought, you know, I, I want to go check it out. And so I went and checked out the meeting. And by the end of the meeting, I was a, a volunteer. <laughs> and... And, uh, you know, two and a half years later, I've, I've uh, worked on a, you know, federal campaign, a federal leadership campaign, um, and, uh, and joined the provincial party. As much as I, I enjoy, or I enjoyed working on the federal, I really, my heart and soul is, is local. And that's what attracted me to the, the provincial party. And um, so the, the values and the principles of, of, of the way the Green Party operates is is what really um, attracts me. So, in your own words, and I like when I uh, this question's asked to candidates of a partisan nature because municipally you can't say this, but what in in your own words, what does the Green Party of Nova Scotia stand for? Well, can can sum it up in two words actually. It, to me, it stands for real change. Um, and then to expand on what that real change means is, is to actually have a plan to make the real change happen. Um, and the plan to involve the local folks, the local communities, the indigenous folks, um, intersectional people, to really and truly leave no one out of the equation and bring everybody together to find solutions that are going to work for all of us. So what are some of those solutions that are going to help Nova Scotians? Because uh, as you're knocking on doors, you're looking for support. Uh, as your interim leader is crossing the province, uh, Jessica Alexander is looking for support from ridings and districts like yours. What are you selling the people of Nova Scotia? Because at the end of the day, the best policy should always win. So what are those policies for the Green Party of Nova Scotia? That's a big, big question. There's, there's lots of policies, and I'm glad that you, that you mentioned you, you, you read our platform. I could, I could just read everything from our platform to you, but that would, we would be here for uh, probably three hours. But well, um, I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask this question because yet again, I, I do research on the district before I, we talk as well, and I understand that you are a more rural riding, so agriculture, tourism. Fishing being a big one as well, then we can mm -hmm. probably talk about that for about a good three or four hours if we want it to just in itself with everything going on in Nova Scotia around fishing. But what are some of the policies that would help the people of Annapolis? Well, let's start with fishing. Um, <laughs> we'd really like to see a move away from the, the, um, the open net pen fish farms and, and a move to... Uh, sustainable land base fish farms. Uh, so not eliminating anything from the economy, um, just moving to a different venue, so to speak, and, and um, providing those opportunities for, for a healthier environment 
and and a healthier economy. Um, I was gonna. I was honoring, gonna. I was gonna I, I'm going to jump in there because I want people who might not be in the riding or in the district or in the province to understand what that means a little bit. So moving away from the uh, the net farming, what does that mean for those who might be going, okay, that makes no sense to me? <laughs> well, net farming, if you Google the picture, you know, just to see what it looks like, it's it's a big round netted pen out in in the bay or part of the ocean and there's hundreds and thousands of of fish in this small space and and what it leads to are you know um disease sea lice um lots and lots and lots of added fish excrement and and uh, you know light pollution noise pollutions uh, the smell pollution um and, and then, of course, if these fish, these farmed fish escape, then you have also have the issues of them taking the disease out into the uh, the wild with them. Yeah. On land, um, you don't you, have to worry about if they escape, they're probably not going to climb the tree. <laughs> are you hearing from fishermen and fisher, uh, in, in the people in the fishing industry that this is a smart move that you're talking about? Because I, I know we, we talked about apathy and how people aren't really engaged in this election, but there's got to be some people who are saying to you, you know what, we do need to move away from the round net fishing and move to a more land-based fishing style. That is the general sense that I'm getting. And it's, it's from the people I've talked to, not necessarily fishermen. Um, I'm trying to think if there's actually... Uh, a net pen farm in my district. I think the closest one is actually the next district over. Okay. Um, so yes. let's continue on because uh, the tourism industry in Annapolis is quite like significant. As like said, it is a big industry that has uh, taken a toll because of COVID-19. COVID-19 has decimated the tourism industry. And I know there has there was that Atlantic bubble that was announced, and then it wasn't an Atlantic bubble. And then there was, and it seems to who knows what day it is and what day of the week it is. Politicians are politicians, and they'll open and close things at the whim. It seems like um, has the tourism industry in Annapolis in the in your district taken a massive hit because of COVID nineteen? Oh, uh, for sure, absolutely. Um, actually, a, a colleague of my husband's runs a, a small. Um, fishing charter and wasn't even sure if, if he was going to be able to open it up this year. Um, he was able to, but had to increase his prices significantly to help, you know, offset the, the debt and, and the rising costs and that sort of thing. Um, the other thing that, um, that I'd like to talk about tourism in, in the Valley and in Nova Scotia in general is, is you know, we, we do have a fairly large ecotourism industry. Um, and it would be great if we could see more uh, investments and supports to that industry. You can drive along and, and find a, a spot and, and think, I'm going to go launch my canoe. And it says, can, canoe launch, but there isn't one there. Um, you know, so these types of things need to, uh, need to be addressed as well. 
So for yet again, for those who are listening who might not know what ecotourism is, and yeah, I think you explained a little bit there, but to dive into it a little bit more, ecotourism is uh, sort of what? It, it's, a, it's a form of tourism where it has as little impact on the natural environment as possible. Um, you know, take only pictures, leave only footprints is... Um, is a saying that's often associated with ecotourism. Um, some I've had people say, well, how can it be ecotourism if I have to fly to my destination or <laughs> drive to my destination? Well, and unfortunately, sometimes that's the only way to get to the start of a destination. Um, but once you're on the tour, it's, you know, there's usually some educational component to it. So a lot of guided, uh, guided tours, um, guided kayaking, guided hiking, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. So it's as, as low impact as possible. And now the, the last area I want to talk about before we switch into the next se segment of the show is um, it actually worked out perfectly because you posted a photo on Instagram within literally two hours of us talking this, this evening for you this afternoon for myself because I'm in Calgary, you're in Annapolis. So the great thing about Zoom, you can talk like this again to, with anyone, but you met with uh, two of your other uh, colleagues who are running in Annapolis, the NDP and the Progressive Conservative. You met with a uh, disability advocate within uh, Annapolis, if I'm not mistaken. What did you hear from him? Because before I uh, talk about what the next thing, I want to know what you got out of that conversation. Yes. Oh, uh, well, I'm glad that that was perfect timing. Um, and it was really um, quite informative and enlightening listening to uh, Clayton. Uh, I'm probably going to pronounce his last name wrong. Dauphiné, I believe it is. Um, he's, he's really passionate about what he does. He does this all on his own time. And what the, the biggest takeaway I can say is that there is no standardized, um, there, there's no standardized guidelines um, or regulations. So, you know, when somebody wants to build or, uh, or renovate a, an accessible bathroom, the federal guidelines say one thing, the provincial guidelines say another, the municipal guidelines say yet another. Um, and then written, it might say, you know, 34 inches. And in the diagram, it shows 32 inches. There's absolutely zero consistency when it comes to this. And then there's little to no follow-up or enforcement to ensure that these regulations are met. Um, what I would like to see as part, and, and the Green Party would also like to see this, but I would really like to see those, those three standardized, you know, into one that is actually a regulation that is enforceable, that is mandatory in all new builds, that is mandatory in all renovations where it is possible, um, you know, recognizing that some older facilities um, it, it just may not be possible to, to, you know, the space and whatnot may not be uh, con conducive to that, but um, mandatory, whatever possible. And, you know, this is, uh, it, was, it was really enlightening because one of the really uh, near and dear to my heart pieces of, of the Green Party platform is building livable communities. And those livable communities are accessible. They are inclusive right from the from the get-go from the design to to the finished uh, community 
Um, the reason I asked, I, I started with that question is because earlier this week, if not, if I'm not mistaken, even like two or three days ago, uh, the liberal leader, current premier Ian Rankin, was at a press conference and uh, protesters came up and said that the liberals have failed on the 2013 roadmap to a better Nova Scotia, where it would potentially, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm I might be getting a little bit of information here wrong, but I'm trying to get um removing barriers to allow people to get access to social assistance and disability, a better disability lifestyle and removing them from potentially housing where they aren't getting adequate accessibility. Um, looking at that from an outsider's perspective, it seems to be a no brainer. Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't we making it more accessible for everyone to live in this country and to your province of Nova Scotia? How do you fix it? How do you fix it when you have a roadmap to 2013 and the last time I checked, we're in 2021. How do you fix it seven years later? Yes, um, that's a good question. Um, it would be great if we could go back in time and have a time machine and, and retroactively fix what needs to be fixed. Um, but when the, is it 2013, the, the report that, uh, that Clayton was talking about today um, was 2030. Um, oh, 20, it might, it, be, made, it might have been released in 2013, but it was 2030. I apologize. You're right. By, by 2030. So, so right. But that's seven, still, we still, still got nine years left. <laughs> Yes, but in seven years, we haven't made any progress. So how do we make up for that time and get it done in the next nine years? Um, and part of that is, is, you know, making those things mandatory for everything that's new, new builds, new, uh, new infrastructure. We, you know, we have some of the oldest infrastructure around. I mean, the house that I live in is over 100 years old and, um, you know, how do you how do you retrofit these these buildings um, to make them accessible to to help people stay in their homes? You know, it's it. I want to age in my home. I don't want to have to leave my home. Um, you know, so looking at the 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 granting programs and the funding programs to help um, with with retrofitting what can be retrofitted uh, is is really needed. How do you, the cost of living is going up in this country, and I'm assuming it is as well in Nova Scotia. Things are getting more expensive to build. Uh, affordable housing seems to be taking a back burner because the cost of making an affordable house is no longer uh, uh, at the point where you can make it for semi at half decent price and be able to have someone live there for uh, in an affordable situation. How do you, because you say this is a uh, like a big thing, what drew you to the uh, party? How does the Nova Scotia Green, the Green Party of Nova Scotia, see affordable housing for the future? Good question. Uh, one of the first things that uh, that we would that we would housing. really need to to look yeah, at is call it affordable housing, uh, but if eliminating people are living in poverty, it's still probably not affordable. Uh, so we have to address the poverty issue first. And we can do that with a guaranteed livable income. Uh, once that's in place, people, you know, are able to to better um, 
you know, address their housing needs. And, and maybe they're in a house that, that is fine, but they can't afford their hydro or their internet or their phone or whatever it happens to be that they need to be there. Um, and, and it used to be years ago, I can, I can remember um, working in community health and social services and um, helping people try to find jobs and, and, you know, social assistance would not provide enough money for a telephone because it was considered not a necessity. Uh, but in this day and age, a telephone and internet is a necessity because a lot of the work that people can do is from home. So we, we need to be able to include those in there. And now I've totally lost my train of thought. No, I'm sorry. No, because <laughs> I, I want to talk about how what can the province be doing right now to fix this issue because like i said cost of living is going up and while universal basic income would be perfect in the perfect world the 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 the, the more expensive things are basic income does not fix that solution of okay my milk is now $2 more than it was a year ago. My, the, the gas that I'm using is now more expensive. The basic income is still not covering the day-to-day -day necessities, the needs of the day-to-day -day, uh, person in the province. Yes. Okay. Thank you for, uh, thank you for that. Um, so taking, taking that and all those, those rising costs into account, Thing, things like the um, sustainable livable communities where, where we're looking for local solutions, rising energy costs, let's create community energy hubs uh, where we're not reliant on um, high prices of, of hydro, um, where we can be energy self-sufficient. Um, you know, supporting local, local farm and food production and creating those, those networks that can can share those resources with each other and then looking at different types of housing models too and, and how we can not realign but um for lack of a better word real realign funding lines to um into those different different housing models. Yes, well, yes, reallocate. Um, whether that's you know looking at some co-housing or supports for more nonprofit housing, um, increasing the number of of government owned um, affordable housing units because the the market is likely not going to be able to sustain that alone. So we're going to need that as well. Um, for the uh, viewers right now who have tuned in, uh, if you've tuned in for our federal election series of, of the ballot box, you're sorely mistaken because we're talking another important election that is happening across the Canada right now on the other side of the country in Nova Scotia. We're talking the Nova Scotia general election all this week. So I hope you do tune in. We are talking with Green Party of Nova Scotia candidate for the district. Is it district? Can I say district? Because I know it's riding out here. Is it district back in Nova Scotia? Yes, electoral districts, yes. Electoral district of Annapolis. Um, uh, Krista Greer, uh, I apologize. Um, I, I, I do have a question. Annapolis has been represented by a liberal for a very long time under the former premier, Stephen McNeil. 
to uh, currently there's no sitting MLA because he resigned earlier this year and uh, there was no by-election called. The election was called. We talked earlier a little bit about apathy and change. I want to go, I want to dive into it for the last few minutes of the show before we do our official wrap up. How do you change a narrative around a dis electoral district when people are so entrenched with one party as they have been with Mr. McNeil or performer Premier McNeil? How do you go out there and sell yourself and hope that people will say, you know what, we do need change? Because we have been represented by the Liberals, and I think it is time for that change. Maybe we'll put our support behind the Greens this time. The best advice I can give is, is to, to speak your message that, that relates to the values um, of, of the people. And, and if you relate to the people, then hopefully that, that translates into votes. And, and it may or may not. Um, people still may may think that strategic voting is is the way to go, or just not voting is is the way to go. Um, but really and truly, I think that we that what the pandemic has shown us is that we can step up and make change in a really short period of time. And if if folks take that example and say, well, if if that could happen to address the pandemic, what could you know, what would happen if we voted for change in the political system? And, you know, those changes can happen rather quick. I mean, with the climate crisis, we, we don't have time to waste. Um, that, that needs to be addressed. The latest um, IPCC, um, yes, IPCC report, um, Code Red for Humanity. We have to act now. And... I don't want to scare people that I certainly do not want to use scare tactics, but there is, you know, it is a scary thing that, um, that is really has uh, the potential for serious impacts on Nova Scotia. And we can have all the affordable housing or, or um, other supports we need, but, but if, if we have growing seasons that, that are shortened or impacted by extreme weather and we can't grow enough food, is that going to matter? If, if the sea levels rise to the point where our communities are flooding regularly, um, you know, is it going to matter? So, so yes, we have to make those changes. We have to speak to those things that, that touch people in a way that they can relate to. Um, and try not to be scary. <laughs> I, I like to think I'm not a scary person. I'm, I'm pretty approachable and I'm easy to talk to. And I, I will absolutely listen to anything that ever that anybody has to say. Um, and, and, you know, certainly I do not have all the answers. And there are a lot of great people in our district that do have answers. And I, I've met um, a, a whole bunch of really, uh, really great people that have some solutions that we could be putting in place tomorrow. Well, I, I want to talk about that. So put yourself in the position. October 18th comes around. You are the newly MLA designate for the, uh, the electoral district of Annapolis. What is priority number one for you? Priority number one. It's, there are so many, but I think priority number one for me would be 
to reach out to those folks that I have met that have those solutions and get that information and put it in the right hands, the hands of people that can start enacting that change. Um, you know, in a perfect world, we'd have a, a green majority. That's, that would be, you know, ideal. Um, but if, but if I were the only green MLA, that would be my role would be to, to make sure that, that the information gets to those folks that I'm holding the other um, parties accountable to those actions and to the, the people, the voters. The, the reason I asked that is, and you just mentioned something, you want to reach out to the people you've talked to. Now, you know, and I know that the role of the MLA is to represent everyone in their electoral district, not just the people who voted for you. So how do you envision potentially working with people who may not have voted for you, but you will still have to represent them? Because I think that that is one of the issues that some people have overcoming voting for someone or accepting that someone is in power is they don't represent who I what I believe. So how do you envision yourself representing all people of the electoral district of Annapolis? For sure. Uh, one thing that I've shared with folks is, is, is just that I am the representative of, of I, I am, <laughs> I would be the representative of, of the folks, of the people. And, you know, when people ask me my opinion, I really want to know their opinion. It's their voices that I need to be elevating to the rest of government. Um, and uh, I would like to be as, as open and accessible as possible to the voters. Um, and, well, not just to the voters, to everybody that in in the uh, in the district, right? Because not everybody is of voting age, but they may still have concerns. Not everybody is is um, is eligible to vote, but they still may have concerns. So, I I want to be available and accessible and let folks know that it's it's there. It, honestly, it's it's not my opinion. It's not my concern that matters. It's theirs, and that's what I would speak. In order to get to August 18th, you first have to be elected. For those who are watching, for those who will be listening to this afterwards, how can people learn a little bit more about you? Because uh, while you probably want to try and get to as many doors as possible, COVID-19 has changed the name of the game and people may not be able to get to it. So for you, how can people get involved? How can people reach out to learn more? <laughs> sure. Um, yes, and, and COVID certainly has been a challenge as far as, as campaigning. So the, um, the easiest way, the quickest way to get in touch with me is to uh, send me a text, call me at 902-309-0142. Give me a call, give me a text, I, I will answer the phone. Um, and if I don't, <laughs> I will return your call. Um, you can also check out my website. It's uh, kristagreer.ca, and that's greer, G-R-E-A-R, dot C-A, Krista with a K. So it's G-R-E-A-R-E? -E? No. You laugh? Krista, K-R-I-S-T-A, G-R-E-A-R, dot C-A. Dot C-A, okay, sorry. I apologize. I, I, I have it written down. I just was like, did I spell it wrong on all my publications of promoting this episode? But I guess not. So you have your website and you have your uh, text message. Any other uh, any other avenues that people can reach out on? Oh, sure. I have. I do have Facebook and Instagram. Uh, they're both at 
Chris DeGreer GPNS, uh, make it simple for folks. Um, I, I do have a Twitter account, but I really never use it. It's just one of those things. You can have too many social media accounts. <laughs> um, so, so Facebook and Instagram are, are great. And you can also email me. Uh, now, th this is going to be sort of a weird question, but I apologize for it. But I feel like I can ask this to you because you, you, you just hit you uh, out here in Alberta. Twitter is like the be all end all of all things political. But when I was researching Nova Scotia's election on Twitter, there's not many people in Nova Scotia who use Twitter. Is that correct? Well, that's what I'm finding here in, in Annapolis and in the Valley in general. It's the area that I live in, we call it Valley, which is a little bit larger than my, my district here. But um, yeah, Facebook is really the, the, the go-to, um, not a lot of Twitter users. Maybe in Halifax, but uh, the rest of the province, not so much. Okay. Well, I will move there because I am not a fan of Twitter. So <laughs> if you can find me a house for me and my husband, we will be there in a few days. Um, <laughs> for my listeners and to my uh, uh, to my listeners and to my viewers, the links to Krista's, Krista's uh, website, Facebook, I still can't believe that you just openly gave out your cell phone number, but your cell phone number as well, uh, Instagram. And yes, I will link Twitter, even though that some people in the Valley don't have it. I will link it in the show notes. They are below. Please check them out. Um, uh, yet again, I'm going to ask this for as my last, last, last question. Why should you be the next MLA for the Electoral District of Annapolis? because I care and I'll do what needs to be done. Wow. It's as simple as that. I'll, I will listen and I will do what needs to be done. A politician who gets right to the point. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, to my listeners in Nova Scotia who are still undecided, please learn about all the candidates in your electoral district. Please, 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 please get out and vote. I don't know how I can say that more than once, but I'm going to keep on saying it until October 17th. Please get out and vote. This is the future of your province you're talking about. Uh, I want to thank all the candidates this week who are who are jumping in and uh, talking about the election. I want to also thank you, Krista. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been an eye-opening experience, and I hope, 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 hope that the people of Annapolis get out and vote and actually do make their voices heard. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. The Ballot Box is part of the Cross Border Interview Podcast and is produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. 